What's up my podcast listeners, this is your host Rafal Matuszewski and this is another uh, compilation uh, episode that I've been doing in the last couple weeks because as you know I'm almost at 500 episodes for this podcast and a lot of the topics I've spoken about in either intertwine with each other or they um, are the same topic and I just want a little bit more depth or added a thing or two and I want to start putting them together so that it's not just bits and pieces so then it's one coherent thing to give you more value and you know doing these little like intro videos kind of opens the door for the topic or whatever it is um, but today what we're gonna go over is kind of this joint by joint training model that uh, Mike Boyle and Greg Cook put together and I looked through my episodes where I talk about the joint by joint approach, um, joint health, and you know functional anatomy because it all intertwines together. So when we look at the body, it's more than just you know my elbow does an extension and flexion. It influences more tissues. Even though I'm doing a bicep curl, my shoulder is involved, my pecs are involved, my neck is involved my core is involved, there's just more, there's like a global effect. And that's something that I think I will end up talking about, um, which is this theory and concept that Dr. Andrew Spina speaks about, about uh, bioflow anatomy. And maybe I'll do a whole separate you know episode on that because it's a pretty, pretty lengthy um, topic and a lot of stuff to break down but I think this episode in particular is going to be very very valuable when it comes to learning how to train pain-free and you know yes my podcast is you know cut the shit get fit and ideally you'd think that I'd be talking about weight loss and I do on my show a lot but in order to be successful at weight loss you need to be able to put your body into um, a gym setting more and more and more um, without days being taken off because your knee flared up or your you know shoulders being sore and now you can't do any upper body motions and you try to do lower body workouts and then your legs get too sore and you have to take time off and you know I've done the math and I've done um, an episode on this where you know if I took someone who does you know, one day a week consistently throughout the whole year, they will end up with more workouts than a person trying to do three days a week, um, you know, throughout the year going, you know, really, really consistent and then dropping off, being really, really consistent and dropping off. So, you know, being able to have more time exercising pain-free will indirectly get you to, you know, the success you want to see when it comes to fitness, health, weight loss, whatever it is. And that's why I'm a huge advocate of joint health, making your joints move better, finding exercises that do, you know, more good than harm to your body, because there's a lot of shitty exercises out there. And people keep doing, keep doing them. And a lot of people don't know any better and end up being in a position where everything fucking hurts. And, you know, working in a clinic, I see people that have been so consistent in the gym and then end up coming in completely broken. They have no idea why. And then you do an audit of the exercises they're doing and like, you're like, well, yeah, no wonder. Like your shoulder is only able to do this and you're pressing overhead. 
and you've been doing that for like years like no wonder your freaking rotator cuff and everything else your anterior shoulder fucking pissed off and literally just seizing up and it's not going to allow you to do anything so i'm a huge huge advocate on moving better feeling better to be able to do the things that you want and weight loss is one of them um i really just want this podcast to provide as much value as possible when it comes to these topics so I'm going to go down this rabbit hole of going through all my episodes and compiling them together so you have one solid resource and you know podcasts that are like longer than my 15 minute uh, quick ones and you know the nice thing is like on the weekends when I do these longer episodes um start putting them together so eventually we're gonna start seeing some episodes that are two to three hours long so um i just want to give 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 and you know my podcast is almost at half a million listens um since i started and i think i'm gonna hit that probably by the end of this month which is huge and you know a little update on my book um really finishing touches i'm putting all the you know photos of exercises in and then I got to go figure out how to print this thing and sell it off onto the internet. But um, let's get this episode started. We're going to start with an episode on functional anatomy and then talking about um, if you have a functional joint. And then the last one is going to be a 40-ish minute episode about um, the joint by joint theory where we do a whiteboard session of what that looks like and I do a terrible job drawing a stick figure, so bear with me. But it should be a really good episode all put together. So that's it for me. Let's get into this episode. Here we go. We're going to talk about some more functional anatomy because on my Facebook, I've been posting a lot about <clears throat> certain muscles that play huge roles in how our body, body, body moves in a functional manner. You know, like before in anatomy classes, cadavers and things like that, a lot of times um, when they wanted to look at the function of the muscle, so an example is like the bicep, they would cut open the cadaver, take away all the fascia, take away all the connective tissue, take away all the crap that is layered on top and in between and whatever it is around the bicep in order to move it. So if you imagine if you had a body just lying there with their arms straight out by its side, they would take a little thing to pull the arm to show that the bicep was contracting like a bicep curl, right? And they would just pull that string back and forth and they're like, oh, that's what the bicep does. But your arm like your bicep that crosses over from the shoulder joint and the elbow joint can do a lot of things, right? Not only does it do bicep curls from like a lying anatomical position, but you can put your shoulder into forward flexion. So if you had your arm out in front of you and then also curl, you can also bring it up towards the ceiling and also curl, right? You can have your arm out to the side and also curl. You can go into so many different positions with the forearm itself and pronation and supination while doing curls and all those different things. So really functional anatomy is not just one motion, 
it's not just one movement that an exercise can do. Your body can do a lot of different motions. But then if you go within the construct of what exercise is, right, which are movements that were created, say, 40 years ago when they first started not even probably 40 years ago, probably 60 or 80 years ago, when they first started looking at movements and muscles and how things like that are connected together, right? So we're kind of leaving a lot on the table when it comes to traditional exercise. And this is where, like, again, I'm biased, but I feel like kin stretch and the FRC principles fit here really, really well. So it doesn't mean that you should stop doing bicep curls and crap like that. I'm just saying that you need to think that our bodies are designed to do more than just bicep curls but if you restrict the you know potential that our bodies can do then you leave a lot of stuff on the table a lot of stuff that can go wrong and then this is where I think leads to injury right so one of the muscles that I wrote about I think this morning or yesterday morning I can't remember what day it is anymore is the serratus anterior so when you look up the serratus anterior anterior online or anything like that, anatomy books, you know, you'll know that it's kind of on the side of your rib cage. And when you're super lean and jacked like Hugh Jackman and Wolverine, you'll be able to see those bad boys pop out. A good functioning um, serratus anterior allows movement of the scapula going forward. So if I brought my arm in front of me and started going as far forward as possible with my shoulder blade, that's on my serratus anterior. So if you think about people doing like scapular push-ups, that's serratus work right there, right? In order for my shoulder blade to do that, that muscle has to function properly. And then allowing the shoulder blade to move forward like that in that protracted position, it also laterally glides to the side. When that happens, that allows your arm to go completely overhead to do things like overhead pressing, throw a ball, throw a baseball, like things like that. So that serratus anterior is actually really, really, really important. When that thing doesn't function the way it should, bad things happen like people get tight necks, people have rotator cuff issues, people can get numbness going down their arm. People can also have bad circulation from that and things like that. So when you think of it that way, this little muscle is very vital to a lot of things. And it's hard to say, like, do this one exercise and your serratus anterior is going to work like a charm. It's tough to say that because everyone's a little bit different. We don't know everyone's history that's listening that might be causing that serratus to not be working properly. Like maybe some people have some mechanical or neurological tension in their body that's preventing their arm to go forward or have that scapular glide. Or maybe someone has so much laxity in their shoulder joint that the serratus can't actually control and it's all over the place. Or maybe someone doesn't have correct breathing patterns that is preventing the serratus from activating the way it should, right? There's a lot of things that influence each other. And this is what goes back to my first point about the whole idea of um, the bicep is more than just curls and crap like that. Like it can move and influence so many other joints and muscles that require that uh, positioning. 
So that being said, the serratus can be influenced by so many other things, right? So this is where I kind of go back. Like if you are working with a trainer and they haven't assessed you from the very beginning without any kind of like movement, you know, assessment or anything like that, they're leaving a lot on the table that they don't know about your body, right? That's like going to a doctor and they don't look at your charts at all and then just start prescribing you shit, you know? Or better yet, going to a doctor, not telling them your symptoms and then they write you a prescription, right? And this is where there's a lot of gray area because it's like, we all know exercise is good for you, right? And it's going to show some benefit. You going to the doctor and then prescribing a painkiller that's a low-level entry one to help you with your issue is probably going to help you with whatever issue you have without even explaining it. But you don't know if that medication, that drug, is going to contradict you on other medications or it's going to make your stomach feel like shit and you start barfing and shitting yourself all day. So exercise is kind of the same thing. Like we all know squats and lunges and mountain climbers and burpees are exercises. They make you sweat. They make you, you know, move. They make you supposedly feel better and you'll get the benefits of exercise on a cellular level and all that. But what if you have a weird hip of some sort and squats, lunges, and burpees hurt them, right? So this is why it's so vital to have an assessment beforehand to figure out why your body moves a certain way. Again, you can only do so much online, but if you're a good practitioner, a good trainer that has a lot of rehab experience, aka like me, you we can try to actually pinpoint what it is, right? And a lot of times, training's not that complicated. Does this movement hurt? Yes. Don't do this movement. Do this instead. Does that feel better? Yes. Okay, we're going to do it this way. Like, that's all it really is, right? So, considering that serratus um, concept, I can do scapular push-ups. Say I'm in a bird dog position, hands and knees, and I'm doing scapular push-ups. And I notice the person, oh, my camera tilted forward, um, can retract, meaning squeezing their shoulder blades together, no problem. But the moment they try to protract, they actually can't move their shoulders in front of them and they end up rounding their entire back, right? That tells me most likely their serratus is not moving properly. But then say I get them standing and do scapular cars and they have a better understanding of how to move their shoulder blades into retraction, right? Pretty much two of the same movements, just a little bit different, but now I have more bang for my buck when it comes to creating more adaptable tissue surrounding the shoulder and the um, scapula that is influenced by the... um, serratus so now i'm going to gear towards using um exercises like scapular cars to get that thing moving the way it's designed now the other thing that i didn't bring up is that the serratus is actually um also influences the rotator cuff 
So if you look at the dynamic of how the rotator cuff works and what it's responsible to do, the serratus plays a huge role in allowing those tissues surrounding the, uh, that consists of the rotator cuff vastly, right? So now you see how these things connect in our body so much. And this is why when you start isolating muscles, um, sometimes it's not the best approach when it comes to training. So long story short, look at the body as one unit. Look at the body as not segmented parts, but one part influences the other. If one part is stronger or more flexible, whatever you want to use, then it's going to have kind of a waterfall effect. and It's going to spill into other uh, buckets. So with the serratus, there's so many things that you can do for that specific uh, muscle, but at the same time, you're going to influence other things. So this is where exercise selection comes in um, handy, right? So yes, you can do scapular push-ups, but maybe you also need some shoulder stability work that also affects the serratus. So one of my favorite shoulder stability exercises is the kettlebell arm bar. And hell yes, I think when you get someone into a kettlebell arm bar, for sure, you're also stimulating that serratus anterior to function a little bit better. If I get someone breathing in so many different positions, prone, supine, side-lying, bird dog position, dead bug position, hell yes, I'm influencing the serratus anterior. Now, if I have five exercises in my program, say in my warm-up, for example, that will not only influence the serratus anterior, but all the other things it like connects to, then my programming becomes basically bulletproof for the individual. And then that's where you see progression, right? So this is why I really, really enjoy learning about functional anatomy is that now I can kind of create a better map in my head about my client and what they need and how to improve their performance and movement. So long story short, think of your body as one unit. Think about the one muscle that your physio or chiro said, you need to fire this thing. And think about all the surrounding muscles that it might influence and also attacking those. And that's going to help you tenfold. All right. That's it for me. I'm going to stop it there because I feel like I can talk about this forever. Um, and today, I feel like it could be a little tangent rant or whatever you want to call it. Um, about I don't even know how I'm going to start this but here's the thing I see this all the fucking time people come in and start lifting heavy shit and things start hurting not in a good way you're not like sore from a workout it's more so my joint hurts my muscle over here hurts what the hell's going on? So an example of this is, say your typical person that sits all the fucking time, um, does that five days a week? 
at work for eight to 10 hours and then sits at home because they're tired of sitting at work. And then they do some more sitting over the weekend because they're tired from the sitting at work. And their hip starts changing structure because it, like again, our tissues adapt to the stress that we place on it. So it realizes that, hey, you don't ever extend your hip other than standing. So any further extension that you need, I'm going to take away because it's useless for you. And then you go to a gym and you place a barbell on your back and you try to do some barbell squats. Since your hip can't extend the way it should, that barbell squat is not actually any, not giving you any kind of benefit to your body because you're now squatting without a hip. Your hip is not acting like a hip should. So why would you place forces that require extension in your hip when there is no extension? Over time, you're putting stress into a tissue that can't adapt to it compared to a hip that has full extension. Eventually, the tissue yields and ow, my hip has a pinch every time I do this thing. Right? This is what happens. Let's take it a step further. If you are a person living in this century, your shoulders are pretty much fucked as well. So now you go to the gym and you take a barbell and start driving it up over your head. And then your shoulder hurts. Your physio says it's your rotator cuff muscle. It's your capsule. It's your whatever. It's not working the way it should. And then you wonder why it's not working the way it should when you're placing force and load into a joint that's not an actual joint. So when I teach other coaches or my patients how a joint works, and I hope people listening, people watching will get this a little bit easier, is that if I have two bones side by side like this and I am facing both knuckles towards each other and there's a space in between. And now imagine my right hand and my left hand mirroring each other and say if I take my right hand and lift my uh, right elbow towards the ceiling, that's my joint moving in space and time. With the space between the two bones, which are my fists, think of a surrounding globe. Think of our earth, our beautiful earth that is engulfed through that, and that's our joint capsule. It's a bunch of tissue that surrounds the joint that allows movement. So if you imagine as I'm moving my elbow up towards the ceiling, and think about that's your shoulder going up. As my um, bone goes up, the surrounding capsular tissue has to be pliable enough to move along to give you that range. So if you think of like one of those stress balls that you squeeze, like imagine if you did a stress ball right in the middle of your hand and you squeeze as hard as possible, it's going to start pushing out in other directions. So now imagine if you just take half of the squishy stress ball and then you squeeze, 
it's going to come out all into one side. And that's essentially how our joint capsules work in order for our joints to move effectively. If that joint capsule doesn't allow that movement, what will happen is if I'm looking at the camera, um, my right hand and left hand will eventually collide and pinch. And that's where people will be like, oh, I get this pinch in my left hip every time I squat at this depth. That's what's happening on the inside of your hip. Your two bones that make up the joint are coming together and they're like the joint capsule won't work. So at another level of this idea of when people don't have a hip or shoulder, their capsule is dysfunctional. Like it doesn't work the way it should. So then I go back to my old saying that I've done the last two years is that you're building strength over dysfunction. Like if you don't have a healthy capsule for your hip, your shoulder, your wrist, your elbow, whatever the fuck it is, why do you think it's a good idea to place load that is supposed to move a certain way with a healthy joint? Right? You got to remember, like, think about Olympic weightlifters. They have really good joints. They're able to squat ass to grass, which means they have really good knee joints, really good ankle joints, really good hip joints. And on top of that, really good shoulder joints to place a barbell on their back to go into that deep squat or a front squat position. Like their joints are built for those types of movements. But then you take a general population person that decides to join a CrossFit gym or a gym that wants to be a CrossFit gym without the name to be whatever person, some special gym that thinks they're better than CrossFit gyms. And a regular person starts doing these things with no like prerequisites of what a joint is supposed to be like. And then you wonder, why does my shoulders always hurt? Why does the inside of my elbow always hurt? Why does my hips click, crack, whatever it is? It's because you don't have a full functioning joint, right? So many of us want to exercise and, you know, get the benefits of exercise and do classes and do um, whatever activity you can think of. But if your joints can't even do the bare minimum of physical everyday life, why do you think placing external loads and forces that go beyond those ranges is a good idea, right? An example of this is people who decide to go running to lose weight when they haven't exercised since high school and it's been about two decades. For sure that person doesn't have enough ankle range of motion, enough knee stability produced by the hip, they probably don't have a hip. They have terrible core activation, so they can't stabilize their lumbar spine. And then after their first run or two, they're like, I have shin splints, my feet hurt, my knees have pain, and my low back is killing me. That is one of the greatest examples that I give to coaches and to people when it comes to them trying to achieve fitness and health um, you know, goals. So we all need to kind of focus on the basics. Like exercise is an interesting thing because so many people um, 
skip the basics, they skip steps one through five and end up at 27. When everything else in life, like, <laughs> makes sure that you has to like go through a step-by-step process. And it makes no sense to me that people would follow this kind of logic. Now, when it comes to exercise again, by skipping these steps when you don't have a shoulder or a hip, you're leading yourself to injury. And again, I always, again, I tell patients all the time, it might not happen tomorrow, might not happen a month from now, might not happen from six months from now, but maybe in a year or two, you decide to go grab a sock off the ground and your entire back explodes and tells you to F right off because that tissue has yield, yielded the maximum amount of force it can take because of your shitty hip mechanics or shitty shoulder or whatever it is and now you're sitting in a physio office or a chiro office trying to figure out what the hell happened, right? This is why like the chiro I work with, Sarah and myself have joined forces together because what a chiropractor does and what a trainer does has to coincide. So if I know I get a client that has terrible shoulders and hips, I'm not going to give them overhead pressing and deep squats when they have no business doing it, you know? So to kind of wrap this up, because I can like rant on this for like a full hour, you need to reassess your body's mechanics. You need to see where you're at. Like it's something as simple as like, should you be taking blood pressure meds? I don't know, maybe you should check your blood pressure by a professional and then they can determine whether or not you need it. So exercise is the same thing. Do I have a hip or a shoulder? I don't know. Get assessed by a professional and then determine what exercises you should be doing or not doing, right? It's like that simple. But for some reason, people have this idea in their head is that they move like a gymnast. They move like a body should, but we don't. Like, we don't live in a world anymore where our bodies should move the way it should. You know, like, back in the day before what we have now, your body could run for its life because a cougar was running after you. You know, back in the day, you could climb a mountain to go find whatever you were finding or getting out of danger or pulling yourself up because there was a flood coming. Like, I don't know. Like, our bodies were designed to do those things, but now living in a world that we do, our body has adapted to no activity and it wants to keep us there. So, man, that was a good rant. Follow the basics. Like, literally everything in life, when you master the basics, you will succeed. So you can apply that to so many different facets of whatever you're trying to do in your life. So when it comes to exercise... Make sure your shoulder acts like a shoulder. Make sure your hip acts like a hip. If And then you can do that for every single joint. If it doesn't act the way it should, then you're going to run into problems down the road. And it's just a matter of time before you go, holy shit, my back is effed. What the hell happened, right? It's good to like investigate what's going on with your body. Like We live in these bodies every single day of our lives, so it would make sense to understand it a little bit. And that's why I think my patients are doing really well during this pandemic when 
both myself and Sarah the Cairo can't see because we've given them all the tools and education to understand what's going on with their body. Like we literally don't really have that many patients that are in dire need of treatment because they have reached out to us. We kind of refresh their memory of what exercise they should be doing and they have access to all these things and they've been putting in the work and they're actually getting better to a certain degree. So really reassess, focus on the basics, make sure your joints actually work the way they should. You'll be good to go. Have an awesome weekend, you guys. I love you all. Until next time. What's up, podcast listeners? It's your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and today is a special edition of the podcast because I am actually recording from my place. So for those who are listening, this is still going to be um, beneficial to listen, but highly, highly recommend you go to my YouTube channel. I'll place the link in the show notes because we're gonna go into a whiteboard session with my terrible drawing of a human. Hopefully you can see that and I will improve on these as we go along, but um, we're gonna go over the joint by joint approach. I've spoken about this a little bit before, but we're gonna go really in depth um, since we have the whiteboard. Um, hopefully I am in frame. Uh -huh. We're gonna go over basically head to toe of what the joint by joint approach is. So the joint by joint approach was kind of coined by Mike Boyle and Greg Cook. If you guys don't follow those two guys, highly recommend you do. Um, essentially what they kind of put together is that some joints are supposed to be stable, some are supposed to be mobile. And I will say there are some, you know, things that the joint can be both stable and mobile and it's like almost up to um your kind of inter interpretation of it and that that's literally what all of this all training is it's like you know you can follow somebody and they create this method of training based on research but really it's their interpretation of the literature right and you know, joint by joint approach is just a theory. And as long as you understand the rules, then that's when you can start blending and bending things. And I think this will kind of demonstrate that um, really, really well. So um, we're gonna start, maybe I should use a different color. I'm gonna use a different color. So I'm gonna draw a little circle. So this guy, the neck joint needs to be stable. I'm just going to go S so I don't have to constantly write stable. So if you think of the neck joint, um, the last thing you'd want is a lot of mobility in that neck joint because then you would have higher chances of injuring it. It makes sense that your neck should be stable. Right now, a lot of times when people come into the clinic and they have pain, um, a lot of times they need a little bit more um, strength and stability in the neck. And a lot of times when you look at our, you know, day-to-day -day life, we all sit all freaking day long. We are hunched over. And funny enough, I was watching uh, an old video of me, like my wife and I use an app called uh, Time Hop that 
um, filters all of your photos and posts that you've done since however long ago your phone has been <laughs> with you. And a couple of years ago, my wife was filming me at my desk and I was like, holy shit, my posture is terrible. So I can only imagine like if you're watching literally like this, you know, for someone like me that's in the fitness industry that knows a lot about posture and, uh, you know, functional training, functional joints and things like that. Um, I thought I would do a little bit better. Um, so that being said, um, I can only imagine how terrible the general population would feel if they're sitting in that position, especially now during COVID where everyone's working from home, like just, just terrible things. So, um, the neck should be a stable joint. So a lot of times it's just learning how to stabilize it with another exercises. So one exercise I really, really, really like, and we can actually do this. Um, we can start listing off exercises. So something, um, we can, oh, I'm going to go through a whole rabbit hole here. Um, we're going to go through like progressions and regressions on how to build neck stability. So there's something called a three month prone exercise from DNS. Um, and essentially you'd be lying in a prone position and all the DNS stuff is something I really, really want to get into, but I've read into it a lot, um, is essentially finding the ways that a baby would develop and utilizing different positions from the developmental stages to kind of reset the nervous system or strengthen certain aspects of the body where it naturally occurs in um, developmental stages as a child. So the three months prone uh, press up as I call it, um, is essentially in a prone position, arms out in front, and it kind of mimics like if a baby was on their belly and as they learn to roll over and move, they're using their head to rotate left and right. And a lot of times, if you think of us sitting in a desk, we're here constantly. So being in that prone position, now we're adding extension to our thoracic spine, lumbar spine, everything. And now we're learning how to um, protract and retract our scaps and also go into that kind of like pack neck position. Um, and I really, really, really like utilizing that exercise. Um, another thing to build stability at the neck, um, again, this is also, this is where we're gonna blur lines, but um, neck cars. So when I teach neck cars, it is a mobility exercise, but at the same time, when I really think about it, in order for you to put your head into flexion, extension, and lateral rotations, I think you almost need some sort of stability in order to do those motions. So it kind of blurs some lines there, but if I'm going through a progression um, type of aspect on this, then neck cars would be kind of the next thing. And now, Another thing I would throw in here is the Turkish getup. Um, 
if you think about that first position lying down on uh, the ground and kind of coming across the body, that rolling pattern, right, um, requires a lot of neck stability. And I really like having that position where someone's lying supine because it's also teaching how to place the head in a more neutral position. And when I coach the Turkish getup, I tell people like, as you get set and you're about to roll over, I actually want you to push into the ground to find that neutral position to create a little bit more joint centration. And again, these terminologies that I'm bringing up, like joint centration, I have created um, podcast episodes on this, so look back. Um, and other stuff that people don't think about is like, oh, I went with the wrong color. Um, like anything with a TRX, when like just TRX rows in general. So when you think about um, on the way down, in order to hold that position on TRX row and pulling yourself up, like all this stuff in your neck has to stabilize so that you just don't pop back or anything like that. So things where you're you know, on lying down and you have to support your neck are gonna be great ways to stabilize the neck joint. Another one that people don't think about is like hip thrusts. So if you're doing a proper hip thrust, um, the motion where say if I'm starting, I'm in that seated position and as I'm driving up and I'm here and my, I'm not resting my head on the bench or box or whatever you're using, I'm holding it for a split second and then coming back down. So there's that repetitive nature of stabilizing the neck. Um, I think I'm gonna stop it there because I could go into so many different directions on the neck and we haven't even like, gone down a little further and I'm going to periodically check my phone like I did earlier and there's that awkward um, quiet space but I want to make sure that uh, my phone doesn't shut off or anything um, okay so let us go should have drew this a little bit better but we are going to circle and again, hopefully you guys can see this. Right in the T-spine. So, I'm gonna do it like this. So, T-spine <laughs> needs to be a mobile joint. So if you think about the design, and like, if you go take an anatomy course or study the anatomy, um, and you look at the biomechanics of each single joint, um, that can also give you a clue to what you should be uh, focusing on. And if you look at the thoracic spine, um, it needs to be a mobile joint because if you look at how much rotation, especially, that a thoracic spine can utilize is about 45 degrees. And a lot of times, going back to that first example where our, everyone's sitting, especially now during COVID, this eliminates the ability to rotate left and right and working with the general population and even like people that are gym goers that are kind of, I would call them like meatheads where, you know, it's like bench, back squat, bicep curls, chest all day, every day. And they end up getting really, really um, stiff thoracic spines. So 
it is imperative for the human body to have adequate thoracic um, mobility. And some of the stuff that I like to do, um, and I feel like I can also start showing exercises. So just any T-spine exercise, any T-spine that um, promotes not only rotation, but also extension and flexion. So you guys have probably seen so many things that I've posted, but things like rib rolls, open books, arm sweeps, anything that opens out um, thoracic um, section of the body. Um, I also like using foam roller extensions. That helps a lot. I also like using a bench in front and going into thoracic um, extension in that position. Stole that from the powerlifting community. I think I saw it from Eric Cressy. Um, just get that T-spine moving. T-spine cards as much as possible. Like Just anything that will prov uh, promote rotation, extension, adequate flexion. And again, I don't really train that much flexion for the T-spine because we're already here. I don't feel that we need more. I feel like we need more extension based stuff and not through the lumbar. So as long as I can get that thoracic um, spine moving a lot better, it kind of trickles into all other things. So here's an example and I will go back into this. So if the thoracic spine for some reason, um, doesn't move as well. Everything else has a kind of like a magnifying effect where everything else stays tight. The moment that this section of the body starts moving a little bit better, now the neck can move a little bit more freely. Because if you think about, you know, our bodies being one unit, um, it will influence other things. So if I have a little bit more movement through here, for sure, if you think of like the stuff in our neck that connects down to the same area, it probably has a line of tension that could get released and things will start moving better. And again, I'm checking to make sure. Yeah. Um, I don't know why I was kneeling down that so long. So again, we've, I've covered so much T-spine stuff. Um, maybe I'll do a post, um, actually, I think that would be good. I'm going to create a post actually with all my thoracic extension and rotation exercises that you can start utilizing to improve T-spine motion. Um, but now we're going to move on to the shoulder joint. And honestly, the shoulder joint is one of my favorites. And this is where the shoulder itself, if you look at it as one whole unit, it needs to be both mobile and stable at the same time. So this is one of those ones that I was saying that breaks a rule. But if you look, break it down a little bit further, the glenohumeral joint where the humerus goes into the glenoid, um, that needs to be mobile in order to go into flexion and rotate. And I'm just doing a simple shoulder car. That glenohumeral joint needs to be super mobile, but the shoulder blade needs to be stable. If you have a super mobile shoulder blade, it's going to kind of float all in weird stuff. And that's where you get 
a lot of issues going down the road. So overall, the shoulder joint needs to be both mobile and stable in my opinion. But if you start breaking it apart, then that's where you can have clear lines at glenohumeral joint, um, mobile, and scapula needs to be stable. So a couple things with this guy. If I had to start picking exercises, and let's go with what we'll probably do two categories. Um, we'll go with mobility first. Hopefully you guys can see this. Um, and if you can, you can probably just zoom in on your end. Um, I always go with the shoulder car. So when you look up a definition of like a joint or even better yet, if you have to figure out um, how to keep a joint healthy, you need to make sure that articulation moves, right? So if I, again, sit all day and don't let this shoulder move beyond me going onto my laptop, grabbing a cup out of the cupboard, certain points of that joint is not going to be as healthy compared to, you know, me moving it constantly in all these different positions. So if you kind of think about it in the sense that the moment you add movement, like our joints are meant to move, the moment you stop movement, things go south, things start deteriorating, things start you know, getting tight, things start hurting. And our body's really efficient at figuring out, you know, do you need this? If I don't use it, I lose it. I always use that lame joke, but it's really, really true when it comes to working with any kind of joint. So the shoulder car is one of those things that's a global effect, not only for the joint, but other things. So if you think about what allows the shoulder to move, not only like the rotator cuff and everything else, um, it has a global effect on other parts of the body. So we go back to the T-spine. So T-spine starts moving better, neck starts moving better, shoulder starts feeling better. And now you can kind of see how things kind of spill out because again, we're not, you know, singular um, beings of, you know, my hip does this, so I just have to do hip exercises. It's, I do a hip exercise, but I'm also influencing other things. So with the uh, T-spine, a lot of times it's gonna influence other things, and I'll show you this more as we go through this joint by joint approach. Um, so for mobility, the Shoulder car is kind of the king exercise that I always like to use, but a lot of times people do it incorrectly. So a lot of times it's just repetition, like just get that shoulder moving. Um, for stability, this is where kettlebells come into play. Any like, if you've seen any of my posts, you'll notice that I always use kettlebells. So the biggest thing that I like to use uh, kettlebells four is shoulder health. So if you think about it, I went to go grab, you know, a um, heavy dumbbell. Automatically in your head, you're like, oh shit, this is heavy. I don't want to injure myself. So I'm going to grip it as tight as possible. And the moment you grip something super, super tight, that shoulder likes to 
centrate and get into um, a better position. And when I think about, you know, joint centration, I think about safety. So anytime I'm doing a stability exercise, I'm thinking about um, safety. Um, so the grip is kind of one of those triggers to tell the rest of your body to be in a centrated position. And I really, really um, like using kettlebells because most of the time, if you use a heavy enough kettlebell to do say a farmer carry, the handle's a lot thicker than your typical dumbbell. So now I gotta work a little bit harder and that just bulletproofs my whole theory and idea behind that joint centration. Um, and then I also, for um, grip stuff, is any kind of bottoms up kettlebell stuff. It kind of almost tricks the body to stabilize a little bit more thinking that it's a lot heavier and it needs more stability. So a lot of times when I work with patients, I end up using only like an eight or 10 kilo kettlebell in a bottoms up position. And that just like people feel it right away. They're like, oh shit, like this is really, really helping my shoulder. Um, the other thing that uh, I wanna bring up here is a lot of times when I do my carries, I'm not super close because I don't most bang for my buck, bunk, bang for my buck um, exercise. So when I think about the shoulder, I'm thinking about what he can do. So that's why when I do a farm recurring, not only am I squeezing tight to get that joint centration, but I'm also um, abducting. So I'm taking my arm that's holding the kettlebell out to the side to about 20 degrees and then externally rotating it about 45 degrees to also get every single rotator cuff muscle um, activated during that time. So if you look at what the rotator cuff muscles are, what they do, now you can start influencing certain exercises with those same um, actions that those muscles are responsible for. And in my head, I'm like, that's what functional training is. If you can understand the anatomy, if you can understand the motions and actions a muscle can do and you start influencing your training with that then you're like a lot further ahead than most people because most people just do what the person beside them is doing or they stick to what they know it's like i'm gonna sit on this machine and just do whatever thing it tells me to and sometimes that's not the best concept so shoulder cars kettlebells for um building up the shoulder both for mobility and stability. So the next thing I wanna get into is lumbar spine. So we're going to, we're gonna hit the big players first. So let's go like this. So the lumbar spine, it needs to be a stable joint. Why? If you look at, again, the biomechanics of what a lumbar spine can do, when it comes to rotation, like we did with um, the thoracic spine, it has about 13 to 15 degrees of rotation. So if you think about any rotational sport or just in life in general that requires you to rotate, if you don't have enough thoracic mobility, where is your body gonna most likely get it from? Lumbar spine. 
a lot of times, and again, this I'm going to bring up the lumbar spine again, how it gets influenced by other regions of the body. And the lumbar spine has to make up for it. That's not designed to do a lot of mobility. You get low back pain, right? And if you look at the statistics right now, it's really staggering how many people have experienced low back pain. And a lot of times you check thoracic mobility and the person doesn't have it, they end up having low back pain or host of other stuff going on. And kind of going back to this whole like global effect, how other things influence, going back to the shoulder actually, when the shoulder starts moving better, the neck also can take a little break. So because the lumbar spine is stable and the neck is also stable, in order for them to stay doing their jobs, other parts of the body need to be uh, mobile. So if the T-spine and shoulder can do their job by staying mobile, the neck doesn't have to stay tight and it can do its job to be stable. So again, joints influence so many different things. Um, so for the lumbar spine, when it comes to creating stability based on exercises, um, things like, let's make a list. Let's do it this way. Just, just core. I'm just gonna, gonna do this. Core. And when I say core, you want to think of what our spines are designed to do. They are designed to fight flexion, extension, anti-rotation, and anti-lateral flexion. Again, going back to like, if I know my anatomy and I know what the parts of the meat wagon that's here are designed to do, then my training can get influenced by it. So when it comes to the core with what I just said, if I know that I can influence the lumbar spine by being stable, by going by that logic, things like an anti-rotation press and all the variations, chops and lifts, single arm farmer carries, side planks, front planks, anything that fights off those motions of rotation, um, anti-lateral flexion, um, flexion and extension, I'm in the right realm of keeping my lumbar um, spine stable. Crunches do not fall into this, right? You're just going into repetitive flexion. That's not fighting flexion, if that makes sense. So if I created an exercise where I had to fight flexion, then 100% that would help. But if I'm just going into repetitive flexion, then I'm not doing myself any favors. And if you even look at like EMG studies of uh, muscle activation for core exercises, like crunches is a pretty low end exercise when it comes to activation. And a lot of people who do crunches in their head, they're like, oh, if I do crunches, my abs are gonna pop out. But you're choosing an exercise that's actually not the greatest when it comes to muscle activation. So why are you wasting your time? So if you follow proper core training, and I could probably do another video in here once. And again, I apologize for the mess because like we just moved in. So the moment I get this place up and running, I can probably start doing a little bit more 
of these kind of videos where I kind of explain and also demonstrate um, exercises. So functional core, quotation, functional core, that will help the lumbar spine. Now, this is where we start having a little bit more fun. Um, I'm gonna draw another circle. And it's gonna kind of overlap. And we are drawing a circle onto the hips and Again, here we go again. For the hips, it's gonna be both a mobile joint and a stable joint. Let me tell you why. When you look at the hip, not only does it need to be mobile, it also needs to be able to stabilize you. So if you think of anything single leg you do, running, lunging, deadlifts, fucking walking, your hip, lateral hip stabilizers especially, need to be able to stabilize so then you don't go into weird like side to side hip things and then your hips are popping this way and start getting hip pain. So in order for the hip to stabilize, a couple things need to happen. One, you can train it, and this is where I love, so if I had to do, let's do one of these just stable exercises, everything half kneel. So the reason why I like the half kneel position to create stability exercises is that it eliminates some other factors. So a lot of times when people are like, oh, I need more stability, I'm just gonna like be on one leg. You're on the right path, but there's so many other things that influence being on one leg, like your feet, your ankle, and your knee. So let's eliminate those factors and strictly work in just hip stability. So when I get someone in a half kneel position, now because I'm in this half kneel position, my hip is the only thing that's gonna stabilize me. Especially if I take this front leg and bring it into midline, now I need to stabilize a lot more, right? So a lot of times when I train clients and people fall into buckets, like general population, tend to need all of all the stuff that I'm already talking about, they need all of this. So for me, I kind of work on the inside out, right? So I would look at T-spine, lumbar, and hips first, and then branch out to the other things. Because again, if we go back to this idea that it magnifies globally, if I attack those three things, it's gonna influence other stuff, and now I can get more specific, right? So that being said, when I train in half kneel, I can do so many things. And again, this, this is how it's gonna spill over. If I am in a half kneel position, and now I'm doing an anti-rotational uh, cable press, band press, whatever it is, I am now working hip stability, core stability, that's gonna help my lumbar stay stable. I've already hit two birds with one stone, right? This is where my whole idea of functional training comes into play. If I know I can choose an exercise that's not gonna just work one thing, and again, our bodies work as one unit, obviously if I pick an exercise that's a lot more um, influential on other parts of the body, then I'm on the right path, right? So not only does that help, I'm also gonna influence other things. So another example of that is, 
if I have um, a half kneeling position, again, working hip stability and low back stability in this position, and I say do a cable face pull, I am now influencing my T-spine and my shoulders. So since we use the example of us all sitting, and I'm doing a face pull to promote a little bit more postural restoration in that kind of planar motion. Now my T-spine is going to function a little bit better being in that centered position. I'm also strengthening up all those weak postural muscles to kind of pull me out of there. So now I'm going to influence the health of my T-spine, the health of my shoulder. Now my neck's going to start feeling better. My hip is getting better stability work. My low back is being stable. Like, do you see how this kind of just magnifies and just goes on this is why exercise selection is so important, and this is why I think when I train clients, they're like, I've never felt so much better in my life since I started training with you, or like in the clinic setting, when I start working with patients and they end up becoming my client, right? They think they're doing a rehab, but when you look at it on paper, they're like, this is just a workout, but their exercise is chosen based on their um, needs for their body. Whew, that's a lot. Okay. So one in doubt, just half kneel everything and you'll be on the right path. Now let's look at um, mobility stuff and king of exercises for hip mobility, hip cars. Again, just like the shoulder, where are we, right? Hip cars. Again, we are going through all the motions a hip can do, you continue doing that, the articulation improves, the integrity of the joint improves, things start moving better, and here's the other thing. Like I said, when the T-spine, I, I don't wanna think I even brought this up yet. Um, when the, yeah, I did. So that when the T-spine is restricted for mobility, the lumbar spine has to pick up the slack. When the T-spine, um, moves better, the low back can relieve its duty and you know clear up any kind of aches and pains. The hip is the same thing. If I don't have enough mobility in the hip, the lumbar spine is going to take over. I find so many times that when I give more hip mobility to a patient or client, low back pain goes away. So now imagine if I start doing hip cars, shoulder cars, and a shit ton of T-spine mobility, low back pain tends to go away. Here's the next thing. What if I start choosing exercises in this core section that's gonna give me more stability in that low back? Now low back pain goes away. This is how this whole concept, joint by joint, plays in with how I program for my clients, for them to move and feel better. Like this is like the blueprint of how we should be training, right? So again, I can go into so many different exercises when it comes to mobility for the hips, but honestly, if you started doing hip cars, things are already gonna start moving and feeling better. I find that a lot of times people are always looking for new exercises, like it's going to fix everything that they haven't thought of already, but really it's like, just move your fucking hip, move your fucking shoulder, move your fucking T-spine, Thing, good things will happen, just keep, keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. Now, 
where do I want to go from here? Because we haven't hit some joints. Um, I feel like I should do this like live so that people can ask questions. Um, let's go to the knee joint. Now, the knee joint. If you're going by this concept, the knee needs to be stable. But also, I will make the argument that the knee also needs to be mobile. And I'll explain that in a minute. Um, if you look at the human body, if the knee does not have proper stability, um, shitty things tend to happen. When this knee joint can't stabilize, you'll get things like anterior knee pain, lateral knee pain, medial knee pain, because the knee can't stabilize and stay in a neutral position. A lot of times, going back to this whole magnifying um, principle, the hip influences what the knee does. If the hip is not moving properly, the knee is usually fucked. So a lot of times when patients come in with knee pain, we're looking at their hip and also looking at their ankle, which we're gonna get into in a second. So when the hip is moving better, the knee is moving better. The hip will tell what the knee should do. So an example of that is if my lateral hip stabilizers are not moving properly or function properly, the knee will start going into weird positions from lunging and running, walking, I'm getting forces into my knee that should not be there. So there isn't like, in my mind, a knee stability exercise. It's more so work on hip stability in order for the knee to stay stable. So now I wanna move on to my whole idea of um, the knee being a mobile joint. I'm talking a lot, this is good. Um, if you look at the knee joint, we have our tibia that runs through ankle to knee. So if I, again, this goes back to like my kin stretch. I teach knee cars because I find a lot of people don't understand the concept that your knee can move. So if I drive my toes towards my face and I think of rotating to the right to external rotation, my tibia is moving external rotation right now, right? If I don't have enough tibial rotation, if I deadlift, squat, lunge, walk, run, things are not gonna feel good. I find a lot of times when people have knee pain and I check their tibial rotation back and forth, they don't have a lot of it. So this is my argument that the knee should be somewhat of a mobile joint when it comes to tibial rotation. And knee cars is one of the ways to do it. Also, you can do some pails and rails and influence some tissue change, which could be a whole nother video. So I'm not gonna get into that because I kind of want to speed this up because last time I checked on this guy, we are, damn, 39 minutes. Okay, um, we're gonna go into the ankle. Ankle joint needs to be mobile. Why? Because our ankles can move in so many different positions. And if you want to really, really nitpick, our ankle can also 
pronate and supinate go back and forth they're kind of on this little teeter-totter as well as so many other rotations right so when we lose mobility at the ankle it influences everything up the chain right so if the ankle is super stiff now the knee is going to have to take over some of the work and the hip and then that's where we end up with some more kind of knee pain and crap like that so make sure the ankle is always super mobile for example for me my left ankle has less dorsiflexion than my right and that tends to mess up when i lunge run sometimes when i do um kind of single leg work i can notice a big difference um so mobility wise any kind of extension flexion just rotational exercises so ankle cars tend to work really really well now i'm going to draw another circle around the foot i'm getting kind of crazy so the foot itself not the ankle the foot needs to be a stable joint so when i look at the foot with all those intrinsic muscles around the foot to help you stabilize for a gait needs to be stable. A lot of times when I see the foot not being stable, it makes a huge global impact on the ankle, the knee, the hip, and low back. The foot is such an under-serviced piece of machinery, especially the arch. Um, when those things clear up, a lot of this stuff works a lot better. Um, one thing that I will say, I'm going to leave for later because we're going to move on because I know I've been talking a lot. Let's now look at the elbow joint. And, man, this is looking... So the elbow joint, kind of like the knee, it needs to be stable, but in my mind, it needs to also be mobile. Elbow obviously needs to be stable, so when you do push-ups, a bench press, pulling or anything like the elbow's not flopping all over the place because it's super mobile, it just needs to be stable. And I will go back to specific exercises, um, but one thing will be grip training. But the reason why I think it needs to be mobile, if you go into elbows being tight against your rib cage, hands up to the side, and you go into pronation and supination, like it needs that rotation back and forth. And a lot of times, if you imagine, if you're a big fan of bench pressing and you realize that your pronation stops where it should go all the way almost parallel to the ground if you're in this position, you going onto a fixed axis by cranking your arms into that position and going down with weight probably not going to feel really good on the forearm so elbow cars just to go through different rotational movements for the elbow is going to be where you live and breathe a lot of people don't think about the elbow being somewhat mobile like there's just enough mobility that it needs in order to function properly to be stable to influence other stuff so here's another example the elbow, if it does not 
have enough mobility, the shoulder now has to work a little bit more. And then it's kind of constant battle between shoulder and elbow of pain and tightness and crap like that. So a lot of times when not only say you get the shoulder moving better, the elbow frees up a little bit, but then if you get the elbow also moving a little better, the shoulder <laughs> again gets a little bit better. Now, let's get into the wrists. Where do I, I'm gonna go the other way. Let's cross over here. So the wrist needs to be a mobile joint. We're almost there. So things like wrist cars is going to help a lot. I find that when you get the wrist moving a lot better, elbow starts moving, uh, moving and feeling better, shoulder starts moving and feeling better, T-spine and neck. Like you can see how this global effect, how everything influences another thing is a huge, huge, huge thing to pay attention to. Now, the thing I wanted to bring up that I kept saying I'll bring it up later is one exercise that I always make a joke that if someone got really, really, really good at that, it will just fucking fix everything. The single leg deadlift with an offset load or contralateral load. Now let's think about it. A single leg deadlift, what does it require? Adequate foot stability, adequate knee stability, hip stability and mobility, low back stability, T-spine um, mobility. It also needs grip strength, which is going to influence elbow um, elbow stability. Sorry, it's also going to influence shoulder stability. It's also going to influence neck stability. So we've hit so many different points of this joint by joint system from one exercise. So my joke is that if I could get someone single leg deadlifting like 50 pounds, all their issues would be go like gone, like, and, and demonstrate like effectiveness during the exercise. Like they're gonna fix a lot of stuff. So I spoke for a very long time. This was a lot, a lot to take in, but it is definitely something people need to pay attention to. I am going to take the camera and bring it a little bit closer so then you can see my little drawing. Um, so again, thank you guys for listening and watching. If you watch this, you guys are amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you have any questions about this, feel free to reach out. And that's it for me. Until next time, you guys.